marched more than 2,000 Tennessee volunteers from Nashville to New Orleans. And with bravado, they fought the decisive battle of New Orleans. But that battle took its toll on Jackson's troops. And sickness, though, however, proved to be more deadly than the battle. And the most dangerous enemy, 150 soldiers, became gravely ill, and 56 of them could hardly even stand it. The doctor, Dr. Samuel Hawk, he asked the general what he wanted him to do. And Jackson replied with these words. To do, sir, Jackson answered, you are not to leave a man on the ground. It wasn't an official code of conduct, code of conduct for the U.S. military yet, but Jackson embodied that military model, leave no man behind. And Andrew Jackson ordered his officers to give up their horses to those who were sick, and the general was the first to do so. Jackson marched 531 miles on foot. Somewhere between New Orleans and Nashville, he earned the name Old Hickory, the same name under which he would campaign for president 15 years later. Before winning the White House, the seventh president of the United States is alleged to have fought as many as 13 duels, which explains the 37 pistols in his, in his gun collection. It reveals a little bit about Jackson's character, Old Hickory. He was not one to shrink back from a fight, especially when honor was at stake. Jackson said, I was born for the storm, and the calm does not suit me. When the seas calm, anyone can captain the ship in that situation. When a perfect storm threatens to capsize, perhaps your marriage, or the things you were hopeful for, you have to play the man. For a man doesn't sit back. He steps up and he steps in. He fights the good fight. Even when it seems like he might be losing. Why? Because in Christ, the true man is equipped for the storm. This passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we've worked through, verse emphasized verse 12 through 17. I spoke on verses 3 through 11 last week. And the situation is this. That the things that Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 about wolves coming up among their ranks and drawing disciples away from Jesus Christ to themselves is happening. And Paul sends Timothy as his apostolic representative here to teach the doctrine that is in line with the gospel by his life. And these guys were teaching things that were empty. They were going off on tangents, and they were causing disputes and divisions in the church. They were teaching the law of Moses, but not the whole point of the law of Moses, which was to bring people to Christ for transformation. And it was distracting from the mission. And so Paul gives his charge in verse 3, I urged you to stay in Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that you might charge that you might, with the authority of a general, military general, teach that they teach no other doctrine. Or give attention to fables and endless genealogies which just ask more questions, but don't give the answers to the Word of God. Rather than God be edifying and building up, that is in faith. That's what he was supposed to do. And then he tells the whole purpose of teaching that brings life in verse 6. Uh, uh, verse, verse 5, he says, the end, the goal of the commandment, the goal of this charge here, 
is love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of, out of faith unfeigned, out of a genuine faith. These guys turn aside from that, and they're like, King James is vain, genuine. It's the idea of meaningless talk. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's just hot air. It's like what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, a, a, a claiming God. Or one of the things that would make the hair on my neck stand up, a yapping little dog. That's what it sounds like. And there's, they desire to be to have this uh, this platform here to be teachers of the law. They don't even understand what they're saying or what they're so confident about. And Paul says, here's what the law is really for. It's to bring people. To show them their sin, bring people to Christ. And Paul says in verse 11, this is to be in line with the gospel of the glory of God. The glory of the blessed God, the happy God, that was deposited, that was committed to my trust. And then in verse 12 through 17, he says, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Do you think Timothy had ever heard this before? Walking on the road to the different cities. Timothy had heard this before, but he needed to be reminded that the word of God is to transform lives. It's not to fill heads. It's not to go down rabbit trails. It's not to go off on tangents. We're to hold the line. And Paul says, this is what the glorious gospel has done for me. Jesus Christ, King Jesus, Christ Jesus, beside Jesus, has, has put me into his work. Put me into his work. And here, what, here's, here's what I was before. The, the chief, the master of sinners. I had a PhD in sin, Paul said. And here's what Jesus did with me. His mercy was poured out in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a trustworthy saying. And that phrase, will, you'll, you'll hear that again in this book as we go through it. This is a trustworthy saying, a faithful saying, and worthy of everybody accepting this truth, that Christ Jesus, King Jesus, came into this world to save sinners. Whom I'm chief. And I'm chief for this fact. That God can hold up my sin life as a trophy of His grace, as a pattern, a type here, a pattern for all the world to see that God changes lives, is what He says in verse 16. And He decides to pray. And verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, immortal invisible. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so now we're at the end of the chapter. And Paul's circling back to what he said in verse 3. The charge to knock these guys, to rebuke them, and if they refuse to repent, to put them out of the church. He's back at the charge here in verse 18. This charge, I commit to you. I'm giving you this deposit. Son Timothy. Son Timothy. What a relationship they have. When we look at verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, Timothy, my own son in the faith. The challenge there was for each of us to have a Timothy. Timothy was the fight of a good fight as a son. As a son of Paul. In 2002, the U.S. Secret Service completed the Safe School Initiative. It's a study of school shootings and other 
school-based attacks, and it examined school shootings in the United States as far back as 1974, analyzing 37 incidents involving 41 student attackers. The young men who carried out these attacks differed from one another in various ways, but almost every attacker had engaged in behavior before the shooting that had seriously concerned at least one adult in the stories and reports. And for many, had concerned three or more different adults. Far from being loners, these, these killers were, were more likely to be aspiring joiners whose attempts at belonging failed. And many of the shooters told Secret Service investigators that feelings of alienation or persecution or bullying drove them to violence. Obviously, sin is evil, and what people choose to do is evil. But there are some less noticeable signs that these boys are struggling alone in our culture. Consider some simple statistics. Boys get expelled from preschool nearly five times more often than girls. Elementary school boys are diagnosed with learning disorders four times as often. By eighth grade, a huge number of boys are below basic level. Males graduate high school at lower rates and attend college right out of high school at lower rates. Young men are three times more likely to kill themselves than young women. Paul had this relationship with Timothy. Timothy probably was a kid who was bullied with his parents' marriage situation. Just a little side note. This isn't the point of the sermon, but something that I can feel impressed to say. Somewhere in your world is a young man looking to you to model real Emotional resiliency, spiritual stability. To show that male to male friendships can extend beyond work or golf or some other idolatry and withstand life's most difficult blows. At a men's retreat, about 30 or 40 men of all ages sat in a room sharing joys and deep, deep aches of soul. There's a young man named Jason, he sat in his chair, his face buried. In his hand, his head trying to gasp a breath as he as he sobbed, because the memories of his life as a kid and the relationship with his father were going back behind. Why didn't he want me? I don't understand why my dad didn't want me. Why didn't he want me, Dad? What's wrong with me? He said. None of the other men had the answer to that question, and you and I don't have the answer to those questions. Why fathers are can be that way. But the problem that we all can identify here was this guy, young Jason, who's crying out for acceptance and affirmation of his father. He's saying, am I such a defect that I'm such, so unlovable to be a son and, and therefore as a man? But what happened next was beautiful. There's a guy in the group, Phil, an older man in the group. He got out of his seat and he walked straight over to Jason. And he hugged him and he said in a loud voice, Jason, I'll be your dad and you'll be my son. And from that day forward, Phil was involved in Jason's life as his surrogate father. The relationship deepened as the years passed. And Phil was present to pray with Jason, to take him to lunch, listen to his struggles, to share his wisdom with him. And during one of his last conversations with Jason, he said to Jason, You know, Jason, you are my son. Jason nodded and said, I know. And Phil became a tangible expression 
of a heavenly father's love where a young man had felt unwanted and unworthy, unworthy because of his father's love. What's the point? What does this have to do with the message here? No, it's a, it's a little bit of a, 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 of a side angle here, but, but Howard Hendricks said every man should seek to have three individuals in his life. A Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Paul, older man, is willing to mentor you, to build in your life. Not someone who's has to be smarter or more gifted than you, but somebody who's been down the road, willing to share their strengths and weaknesses, what they've learned in the laboratory of life, whose faith you want to imitate. And then Barnabas, a soul brother, someone who's not impressed with you. He loves you, he's not impressed with you. Someone who may be accountable, who's willing to say, hey man, you're neglecting this, and I'm not going to let you do that. And then Timothy. A younger man whose life you're building. <laughs> Read first and second Timothy, right? Here's Paul. Here he is in this passage. He's building into this life here of his of his son. He's building into it. And it's and it's key. It's an important form. And he's and he's and he's not going to, to put up with, with, with Timothy just handling things like he would have. He's going to push into Timothy's life. And he says, Timothy, you're my son. You're my son. I wonder where God's calling you. Timothy, you're my son. And I'm not going to let you just sit still. You've probably gone through some difficult things. You see me gone through some difficult things. That's where I'm sharing my life with you. But Timothy, look what he says in verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on, which, which, went, which went before on you, that you by them might war or wage or fight a good warfare. Fight a good warfare. You know what he's saying? He's saying, it's a beautiful fight. I don't know about you, but I don't usually think of fights being beautiful. Here, Paul's saying, Timothy, that this fight, the fight to hold the line for God's truth, not add or take away from it, to teach straight down the line of God's Word, to make sure there are things that are distracting from God's Word, to make sure that the motivations for the teaching is changed lives, lives that love, lives that are a pure heart, a good conscience, a genuine faith. To make sure that that happens. And Paul says that is a beautiful fight. The word good, the Greek word kolos. Good's a little bit of an understatement in our culture. We use good all the time. Good job, right? The word is excellent. Beautiful. And Timothy was a fight, the good fight. A good and excellent and beautiful good fight as a son. Here's how he's supposed to fight. You know, I'd be worried about someone who didn't fight the good fight. Billy Sunday said, I sometimes wonder whether the church needs new members one half as much as she needs the old bunch made over. <laughs> Judging by the way multitudes in the church live, you think they imagine they had a through ticket to heaven and a Poland palace car and had left orders for the porter to wake them up when they headed the yards of the New Jerusalem. Paul says, if we're going to be Christians, we've got to fight. It's beautiful. Fight how? Notice what he says. According to the prophecies which went before on you, that you by them might wage, might war a good worker. So first of all, he's saying, 
by what God has spoken over us. Timothy, at some time there in his church, in Acts chapter 14, 21 through 23, where Paul points elders in the church that Timothy grew up, probably the church at Lystra, had, had, had the elders in chapter 4, verse 14, neglect not the gift that was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, the elders here. Timothy had had a word from God pronounced about him, and his call and his purpose here that had been made earlier about Timothy. Probably similar to what Paul had in Acts chapter 13, when the prophets and the leaders at the church at Antioch had said, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit had said to them, separate to be Paul and Barnabas for the work I have. And, and Timothy is told, by that, by that day, you remember that day, you remember what was pronounced over you, you remember what was told, by them fight, by them fight. You've been given a spiritual gift. You've been ordained to these good works here. You're put in this position for such a time as this, and God's kingdom, to think along the lines of Esther. What God has already said about you, walk worthy of what he has said over you. So Timothy was the fight in agreement with God's purposes. Like Mike said, well, I never had anybody prophesy over me. And probably haven't. But God's word has declared who you are. And some of you also know the ways that God has geared and steered your life. And the things that he's, he, has, he has made you to become. The calling that he has in your life. The particular direction that the way he's designed and built you has allowed you to contribute to Jesus' church. And you are to fight for transformed lives through the word of God by what God has declared over you. Secondly, the charge for the prophecies that went on before you that you by them might war a good warfare, holding faith, keeping or having faith in a good conscience. Timothy is to guard his faith and conscience. This fight for God's word to transform lives and pushing into that transformation here of changing, like Paul is such an example. This fight, you're to fight to guard your faith and your conscience. What do you mean, guard your faith? Well, faith here is could be used in a couple ways. It could be the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints, the way of Christ and his apostles, the New Testament faith. But obviously there's also a subjective element to that as well. Your allegiance to that. This fight will guard your trusting allegiance in God's plan. Get in the Word. Understand your purposes. And fight for it. There's an English um, uh, uh, Anglican preacher, Hugh Lattimore, during the, during the Reformation. He stole the Word. Had a kind of vivid preaching style. And uh, he eventually was burned at the stake. And he was really this enamored with his fellow preachers. He said they, they pamper their paunches. They munch in their mangers. And he said they, they moil in their pretty manners and mansions. Now one occasion he was invited to preach at Hampton Court be, be, before King Henry VIII. Had a reputation for having a really loose hand with accents, right? And he offended the king very predictably. 
And Henry came in and Latimer to preach again the following Sunday and to make an apology. And Latimer had to recur himself for that day, so he began to talk to himself. And he addressed himself in the, in the first verse, in the third verse, he says, You Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that they may displease. But then, consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdest all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul to hell. Take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. So what do you think he did? Eulatimer preached the same sermon he preached the week before, <laughs> with even more energy. Fight the good fight. This fight here will not only strengthen his allegiance to Jesus and his word and the gospel line of transforming lives, but this fight will also help his conscience. It will keep him from sin and guilt, from corroding his conscience, holding faith and a good conscience, and therefore effectiveness in ministry. Do you understand that a bad conscience is many times the mother of all heresies, objections to the word of God. For Timothy, not to hold the line of scripture would be a vain, empty thing. It would be failing to bear the name of God. It would be taking the name of God, carrying the name of God. Conscience, the Word of God, that allegiance to the Word of God, keeps you from the guilt-free conscience. That's a tremendous blessing, a kindness of God. The actor who played uh, Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings talked about his aging father who was suffering from dementia. And his father kept telling his caretakers about this strange incident from his childhood, the day when he forgot to close a pig pen. And everyone thought the old man was just spouting nonsense in his dementia until he discovered the truth behind the story. Apparently, when he was a boy, there was a time when food was very scarce. And he let the gate open, and the pigs got out, and they ransacked the family garden. And he never admitted to his heedless mistake as a boy. He had denied it his whole life. But clearly, that guilt had buried itself deep in his subconscious. And here in his dementia, he could not hold it up. Hold it back. Word of God and our allegiance to the Word of God frees us from that. God's grace. Look at Paul, one who was the chief of sinners. God's grace was exceeding abundant with faith and love that's in Christ Jesus. It frees us to confess, to repent, to change to what the Word of God says, to turn to God. But not only that, so we're to fight by what God has spoken over us. We're to guard our very faith and conscience as we fight for transformed lives. But there's a final thing here. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. 
concerning the faith, concerning faith, have made shipwreck. With, I'm sorry, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. They ignore their conscience. They let it go free. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have delivered to Satan, and they learn not to blaspheme. Fighting the good fight and fighting for transformed lives through the Word of God here keeps us safe from destruction. Safe from destruction. I can't tell you the line here and where it goes. You know, somebody was 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 never really saved, or or how that happens when people turn away from the faith. I don't know what that happens. I just know the Bible says it does. <coughs> but the Word of God and holding the line it is the way. <laughs> It is the way. And as we exhort ourselves, uh, uh, as Hebrews 3 says, to make sure that we don't have an unbelieving heart. Hebrews 3, 10 and 11. Exhort one another today, daily. Well, it's called today. Won't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. We exhort ourselves to, to hold true, to be faithful, to, to have a loyalty allegiance to God's word and stand for it. It keeps us safe from destruction. Why? Well, without it, we can be too confident in ourselves. Let me give you an example. There's a 1923 naval exercise. There's a naval destroyer called the U.S. Delphi, and it led a flotilla of seven vessels down the California coast. And it was captained by Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter. He was an experienced navigator. He was an instructor at the Naval Academy. And without warning, about halfway on their training mission, there was a thick blanket of fog that descended on the ships coming down the coast of California. In the midst of the fog, Hunter claimed it looked like, like pea soup. Hunter couldn't get an accurate evaluation of his location. And contrary to Hunter's calculations, the lead ship was headed right into Devil's Jaw, which was two miles off the California coast, the renowned place of shipping. But that didn't stop Hunter from plowing ahead. But that wasn't surprising because Hunter was known for his self-confidence. What others called his magic infallibility to guide his ship. Traveling at 20 knots, the U.S. Delphi smashed broadside into the Rocky Point Arguela shoreline. And the force of that massive collision of welded steel and jagged rock split that hole directly in half. And one by one, the other destroyers followed in that path, followed the lead, and smashed into the rocks, and 22 naval men died that day. And it resulted in the loss of all seven ships. And it still stands as one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in history. And here it was, these guys. Because they departed from the Word of God, what the Word of God had clearly said, and the author's intent, and gone their own way. We find out later, this is the same guy, Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2, he starts teaching that the resurrection wasn't true, wasn't going to happen. The Word of God, and fighting the good fight, to stay loyal to the Word of God, allows us to be safe from destruction. Rejecting it results in people crashing their faith. And here's the example. These two guys, 
There's three Alexanders. You don't know if this is the, one of the ones he's referring to or another one. It's a very common name here. But they are released to Satan. They are apparently the apparently leaders of the church, drawing away disciples unto themselves. They're released to Satan, just like 1 Corinthians 5, for destruction, for punishment. But notice what he says. Why is he delivered them to Satan? Verse 20. That they may learn not to blaspheme. Folks, when we get away from the word of God, we're blaspheming. That's what these guys are doing. So that we talk not to blaspheme. Why does he say that? Because he's holding out hope. That they'll learn from this. That like the, the, the point of church discipline is, is to see still restoration, to see it come back to Jesus. And Paul's holding out that hope here. They'll come to themselves that, that they'll see the error of their ways and they'll return to, to Jesus here. So, Paul tells us that we're going to fight the good fight here and see God transform lives in His great plan. We're to do it by remembering what God has spoken over us. We're to do it by holding to His Word. Holding to our, 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 our faith in His Word and, 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 and a good conscience. And we're to do it to be safe from destruction. That's the stakes. And that's, they'll tell first, uh, Timothy later, First Timothy 4, take heed to yourself and to the teaching. Continue in them, for in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that fear you. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you are also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives light to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some of strength concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in a couple minutes we're going to sing about the beauty of this gospel, the glory of God. What it will deliver In our day, we have so many things calling us to focus our attention on emptiness. Things that will not pass. Build your people through your word. Would you totally...